I'm just going to start with a question here for you, and just let you guys settle in, those of you that are still welcoming one another. I want to start with, what will you be remembered for? What will you be remembered for? You can think about that a little bit. Don't, you don't have to yell it out. I mean, unless you really feel like it. But then some might judge you. No, we won't. We don't judge one another. But what will you be remembered for? Our series title that we've been in for this last bunch of weeks, and today that I'm going to be concluding, The Faithful Presence, sometimes makes me think and remember loved ones who I believe are still faithfully present in my life because of the legacies that they have left. And sometimes I even think about, you know, celebrities, right? Because I really enjoyed somebody's movie or, or they were a great singer. And so when their song or a movie comes on TV or on Netflix or, however, or on your tablet, however you watch those things now, their faithful presence is brought to mind to me. And I'm remembered of all the experiences I had watching that show or listening to that song or people I was with when I watched that movie, show, or the song. I don't know if you ever had this when you're driving. And uh, I, I do this to my kids. I didn't tell them I was going to talk about this. Well, they really, it's just about me. But um, sometimes when we have a family night and we do, you know, we, we were carving the pumpkins this last week and uh, having fun. And then often when we have those moments together, I'll, I'll take my phone out and I'll look up music that I used to listen to in the, when I was in high school. And I make them listen to it. And then they make fun of me, and then we talk about that, how you should not make, no, we don't say that. But we, you know, I, I want them to know about the experiences I had and the stories we tell. Oh, you know, we'll bring up a song. Oh, we, when your mom and I started dating, we were listening to this song, and they'll either roll their eyes or laugh. But all those kind of things bring these kind of faithful present moments to our minds of, of experiences we've had, of movies we enjoyed, of music we loved. And of course, loved ones that left a mark on us and a legacy with us. Their faithful presence is always near us. Their accomplishments, their relationships to us, they bring all these memories. And they make them present in our lives even today. So the question stands, how will you be remembered? If you are new with us today, if you're just joining online, welcome those of you that are online. If you're tuning in and you're kind of thinking, faithful presence, what are we talking about? Well, we've been in this series looking at faithful presence. And if you missed anything, and if today you're, you're listening and you think, man, I'm, this is really resonating with me, or I'm curious about this, I just want you to know you can catch up to all our messages online. You can see them on our website, on our app, Circle YXE app, or on our YouTube channel, and just catch up with that, because there's been some awesome stuff. We've looked at God's faithful presence in our midst, both in our good times and our difficult seasons, at how God's faithful presence has called people to live out the same faithful presence of God in their lives. We looked at how, what it looks like to be shareholders, not just consumers of faith and religion. We looked at what it looks like to, to, to have God faithfully present in our sorrows and our suffering. And maybe now that I've said faithful presence so many times, you're thinking, that's great, but it seems like kind of an abstract idea. I don't even know what to do with it. What, what, I do, what do I do with faithful presence? Sure, I like some movie and that brings some memories up, or my loved ones, I think about them being near me because of the legacy and things they have left with me. But what does that actually mean for me? Well, if you're thinking that, you are in luck, because I'm going to attempt today to unpack some of this 
with you. And one of the things I want us to be clear about and to see today is how faithful presence is actually the core message of the biblical story. In the biblical story, we learn that the Bible, all its stories, all its authors, all its history and miracles and wonders, all of that is actually one unified story that leads to Jesus. But more specifically, it is a unified story of God's faithful presence leading people to the right time for him to arrive in Jesus. Three weeks ago, when I spoke on God's faithful presence in our sorrow, I quoted Tozer and I said, God's presence is the central fact of Christianity. What Tozer means is that at the heart of the biblical story, all of it, all of it put together, the arc of the story is the fact that God is actually present. Not removed, not far, not, not somewhere else. He's actually present here now. Like God is present, if this is true, he's present here right now. And at the heart of the Christian message is, is, is this reminding that God has been pursuing people all along. And as we unpack the Christian story, as we look at the full story, we see people engage with God and love his presence, but when things go really well, sometimes forget about God because things are going well. And when people step away from God's presence and things go bad, God still waits and still pursues and still goes after him. This is the poignantly central fact of scriptures, that God is present. Just a quick survey of the scriptures testifies over and over again that Tozer was right in his quote, God is waiting, pursuing, and active, active even in the waiting on us. God is present. He desires to be present with his people. And the reason this is important is because God's faithful presence in the world was and is always leading to reconciliation and restoration of the world. Reconciliation and restoration of the world because there's something, and we all know this, I don't have to tell you this, we know there's something wrong in the world. It doesn't take long to see that, to recognize that there's something isn't quite right. There's death, there's pain, there's sickness, there's violence, and God's plan has always been to be with people to reconcile, and to restore. So today, I want to do just a quick dive. It's, it's, it's not super deep, deep dive, but a quick dive into the powerful theme of his presence in this whole unified story. And I want to do this because sometimes when we don't see the full arc, when we don't see the full story, when we don't pull back and see what God is doing, we can focus on small parts and miss the bigger picture, right? All of us can misunderstand the Bible. We all do this. We come to it um, with ideas that maybe it's just a collection of inspirational quotes or somehow just dropped from heaven and we just got to believe it somehow. And because, and because of that mistake, most of us gravitate to the sections of the Bible that we really enjoy and ignore all those other difficult and confusing and even disturbing parts of the Bible. We don't know what to do with them. So it's really important to see the quick story despite those frustrating parts in it to see what God is actually doing. So we'll start at the beginning and I'll kind of just, I'll just kind of, I'll miss some of your favorite stories, but I'll hopefully give you an arc here and we'll come back to why this is important. God created the heavens and the earth as the place of his presence. 
And we read in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. You see, humanity was created to be in this reality of God's presence, to be part of the heavens and earth, this place called Eden. It was God's sanctuary, a place where humanity, where Adam and Eve were with God. This is a key teaching here, right? The presence, humanity was with God. But humanity seized God's authority. They wanted to be gods themselves and broke fellowship with him. And when they heard the sound of the Lord, so they they protested, they stepped away. They wanted to be gods of their own life. They wanted to have their own authority. And when they did that, they walked away from God. And we read in Genesis 3, 8, they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. God's presence with humanity had been disrupted. In that disruption, violence broke out. Stepping away from God's presence brought in violence into the world. Then we have the flood, and, and God set out to restore things after the flood, to be present in his creation again. So God called a man named Abram, later Abraham, and birthed a people to bless who? The nations, the world, through the presence with this group of people. And then through a series of events, the nation ended up in Egypt, where they were enslaved. And after many years of suffering in Egypt, God manifested his presence to Moses at the burning bush and sent Moses to deliver his people. And in that sending, God promises to be with Moses. We read in Exodus, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the king of kings, the guy who rules everything? Who am I to go to him? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said to him, I will be with you. The pattern of God's presence being with those he sends and calls out runs constant through the entire story of God in the Bible. Moses, as many of you know, then leads God's people out of Egypt. They come to the same mountain where God had earlier spoke to him. And God calls Moses up the mountain to be with him. Now, while Moses is with God, the people of Israel fashion a golden calf. They fashion an idol. They walk away from God's presence, even in the midst of being near God. And and God is in great anger, sends Moses onward and withdraws his presence. He steps back from Israel because they're choosing to be away from God. And he writes in Exodus, he says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Sure, go. But I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people. You're stubborn and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. They, they stopped dressing up. They, it was sweats day. They started wearing sweats. Wait, actually, is, sweats are fashionable now. Well, whatever is not fashionable. But Moses intercedes. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. He says to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see the pattern here. God's people are not his people apart from his presence. Years later in the promised land, the temple stood in the middle of Jerusalem as the nation's meeting place with God's presence. This is where the people came to be reconciled with God, to be present with God, to pray in the presence of God. But when God's people rebelled and disregarded God for false idols... God left the temple. The temple was eventually destroyed and the people were dispersed in exile. Nonetheless, God promises to renew his presence among his people. 
And we read in Ezekiel, he says, I'll make a covenant of peace. I'll make a promise greater than a promise. It's a covenant with them, and it will be everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. There's this amazing reality in this arc of the story. God is from the beginning pursuing people who keep pulling away, who keep rebelling, who keep making idols, who keep making other gods of their own ideas. And as this teeter-totter, as God waits, acts, tries to be with people, and they, and they want him there, but when things get good, they pull away. And it's this back and forth. And that whole story of this nation doing this is really like our lives, isn't it? When things are going great, we are our own rulers, kings. We don't need anyone. We got this. But when things fail, when things go horribly wrong, and they often fail, Now, let me rephrase that. They always fail. We beg for help, and we make promises that we'll never do this again. I'll never act this way again. I I shouldn't have been there. I won't do that again. I shouldn't have had that. I shouldn't have done this. And when God enters that because we pray and we cry out, and his presence begins to restore and enlarge us and restore us, sometimes, like the Israelites, we forget, and we begin to walk away. So God in this passage, Ezekiel promises, knowing this flakiness of humanity, that he's going to do something that we can't do. And he's going to make a covenant, and he's going to make a promise, and he's going to dwell with us despite of us because he loves humanity. It's the central part of the message, that he's present and he's near. And people wait. And finally, after years of waiting and his perfect timing to make the covenant of peace and make his home with us, He arrives to renew the broken relationships, to forgive people of their sins, to break hold of the violence among them, and to destroy death. God arrived to heal Israel and the world through his faithful presence. This promise was fulfilled in Jesus, in God coming into this world as Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, God with us in flesh. In Matthew's gospel, and gospel just means good news because Matthew had good news to tell In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is born of Mary in fulfillment of that prophecy that Ezekiel was talking about. Matthew's 1.23, read, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come in flesh to be the very presence of God among us. And there's just this quick, fast synopsis of God's presence and promises in the scripture leads us to this important foundation that we've been talking about in this series, the faithful presence of God. And when people, with the original readers, when Matthew was writing this, when they were looking at Emmanuel, God with us, people got it. Because that was central, that was the desire we had, God be with us, be with us. We need to, re- we need to rebuild the temple, we need God here. This promise of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Psalms and many, many more becomes fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As you can see, God's faithful presence is through and through the entire story, leading to God himself coming to be with us in Jesus. And then, and then, God's presence has been renewed to us in Christ when when he's crucified, when he defeats death, and when he leaves, what does he do? His spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, arrives, comes in his place. We're reading Jesus' parting words in the Matthew's gospel 
in, verse, uh, in chapter 20, verse 20, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of age. God fulfills this promise through the outpouring of the Spirit's presence on women and men, daughters and sons, prophets and prophetesses, as proclaimed by Peter in his sermon on, on Pentecost. And Pentecost, by the way, if you're not sure what that is, just Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after Easter when the Spirit of God arrived, reflecting the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you. But it's just amazing. The arc of the story was always pointing to this, and God has come again to be among his people in the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, God has restored his presence among us, which began with his people and his Holy Spirit coming on us. And according to the Apostle Paul, we, the church, God's own people, are his temple now. Look how Paul puts it to the church of, of Ephesus, a diverse and complicated city with so many things going on and so many dividing ideas. And Paul writes, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You now belong, you are present with God. You're no longer somebody else. You're no longer somebody from another country. You're no longer a foreigner, a refugee. You now belong to a family. You are now welcome. God's presence in Jesus does not end with Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension. In Jesus, God extends his own presence by giving his people the Holy Spirit. The scriptures from the beginning to end tell of this marvelous story of God returning his presence to all creation. Everything that humanity did to walk away from God in the garden and hid, God began an ark story to bring people back. Not to force, not to bend your arm into some kind of relationship, but to offer his presence, which your soul has been thirsting for all along. So I told you this ark. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because God's faithful presence in the world was always leading to reconciliation and restoration of the world in and through Jesus Christ. To end the suffering, brokenness, hurt, and pain, to the end of death was God's plan since the moment humanity seized God's authority and brought death into the world. God has been on the mission to end death and violence. And here's the twist. There's always a twist, right? Here's the twist. After Jesus' work on the cross, Jesus' plan for the world, his plan to continue the work of ending suffering, to end brokenness, hurt, and pain, to be the faithful presence in the world, God's plan for this is the church. Now, be honest. When you hear that, some of you had a reaction. Some of you was a positive reaction. I heard an amen, which is great. But some of you heard otherwise. Some of you felt something else. When I say God's plan for the world is the church, some of you, most of you, your reaction might not actually been that positive. Some of you happily agreed, but agreement um, may have been your desire, what the church should do. Maybe, I don't know. Some imagined maybe the historical pain that's tied to the word church. And how can this be God's answer? Some maybe thought of the universal large Christian community around the world as a church and thought, okay, well, maybe all together all of us are doing something good, but you're not quite really sure what does that even mean. Other people might have had specific people in mind. Church, okay, that's so-and-so. That, that's the famous pastor I watch on, on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. 
Or maybe you thought of your circle group, and you thought, that small group, that's my church, that's people that really know me and care for me. Whatever it is for you, we have many ideas tied to the idea of what church is and what it should do. But here's what I want us to see a bit better today. God's desire, as we outlined from the beginning, was to be with his people, to be in one another's presence. So the work of hope and reconciliation has always been meant to be done together, us with him and us with one another. Even in the garden, God still had a vocation. Have you ever noticed that reading the first chapters of Genesis, that God had jobs for people? That they had relationships, they had a purpose in mind. They weren't just sitting under a tree watching Netflix, although there's time for that. They had purpose, they had meaning, they had something to do, which begs to think about that in eternity, we will have something to do. So in Jesus and then in his Holy Spirit, the birth of church happens. That is people in the presence of God to be agents of reconciliation and hope, to be Jesus' hands and feet in this world, to live out like Jesus. They, they initially were called people of the way of Jesus. They were just following apostles' teachings and they were like, this is what it looks like to live like Jesus. And they were doing it so well that people started to insult them and say, those little Christs. That's what Christian means, little Christ. It started as an insult because they saw people acting as Jesus would act. Friends, church didn't begin as a building. It didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin as hierarchy. Church began as a movement by people who encountered Jesus and their entire life could no longer be the same. Church is a movement of people who encountered the living Christ and filled with his spirit, his presence, were changed and then changed the world. And maybe you can ask, well, if you're just talking about church, doesn't this limit God's presence too strongly to the church? Like, isn't God already present all over the earth? Why do we need the church to be faithful presence in this world? Well, certainly God is present and at work in the whole world, for sure. That's the arc of the story we talked about. Nonetheless, he becomes uniquely present and uniquely visible in and through a people. First among his chosen people of Israel, concretely symbolized in the temple, and then through Christ in the church, his body. The reason I did this outline of God's story is to make this very, very clear that Jesus is uniquely present and visible in and through a people who dwell with him. So what I want us to do is to look at the birth of the church today. We saw the ark. We saw that Jesus did what he did. We saw that people prophesied that he would do what he did. And then he ascends and promises his spirit, and his spirit arrives. And I want us to look just, just quickly at the birth of the church and why that matters as those of us who gather and call ourselves a church. Part of this story is found in the book of Acts. I love Acts. It, it's, uh, Luke is writing. It's actually second part to the book of Luke. And he's documenting everything. It's called Acts because it's really actions of the church. It's, it's actually not that creative a title, right? He's like, oh, they're doing stuff. Let's call it Acts. They're acting. Okay. So anyway, so that's the book of Acts. It's continuation of Luke following Jesus' followers as they are given the power of God's spirit and tasked with spreading the good news of God's kingdom to the ancient world. This book is all about the beginning of the incarnation of the multi-ethnic church. 
As this church began, it began in the way of Jesus, as I said earlier. In fact, followers of uh, I talked about this already. I'll skip that. I kind of jumped out of my notes a little bit. So what made this church grow? What made this church spread? What, what allowed this church to be a, the vehicle that God launched to be his unique presence in the world? Let's take a look at some of the characteristics. So I'm not going to look at all of the book of Acts, although I would just encourage you, if you have time this afternoon after AGM, just read just like the first five chapters. It's just, chapter two it's by itself is packed, packed with stuff. It's just, it's so surreal because there's stuff happening there. In fact, Luke records it. <laughs> there's so much stuff happening that people are like, like Peter is preaching and people are like, he's drunk. And he's like, no, not yet. It's only, it's only morning. So I don't know. His evenings must have been fun. But anyways, it's it's fantastic cha- uh, book. So we, let's take a look at the characters. So we'll jump in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, just the first part. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first characteristic of the early church of this movement of the way was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is so interesting because the background of this story is only two months since Jesus left. It's only been two months. These same disciples, same students of Jesus who people knew and saw, the same ones who ran away when crucifixion happened, were now teaching and leading the church. The moment of resurrection had restored all their faith in who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. Two months into the early church, the early gathering, the early movement dedicated to the apostles' teaching, now, if you're wondering what's the difference between apostle and disciple, apostles generally were considered the, the first, well, it was 12, but then, you know, Jesus did what Judas did. So it was 11 uh, of the first closest disciple students of Jesus. And then they added one, they drew lots and added, and so it was 12 again. But those were the apostles. So two months into the movement, people who saw these students, how they acted at the cross, now see how they act after the tomb. That transformation in them and that arrival of the Spirit like tongues of fire earlier in the same chapter led people to devote themselves to understand who Jesus was from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. We continue reading. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowships, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. To fellowship. They are a welcoming bunch. A church committed to be together, to eat, to learn, to grow, to be a movement that welcomed all people. They gathered. I want to say how important it is for us to gather. And I know pandemic gets in the way of things, and we need to be safe, and we need to do all the right things. I'm on that, I'm on that train. But it's so important to gather. Jesus had transformed any old thinking of us and them by letting people gather and see each other for each other and to welcome others into his presence lived out by his people, the church. Let's keep reading. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early gathering, the early movement of the church was a praying church. These early Christians knew that they could, not, they, they could not do life on their own strength. And they knew they did not need to do it on their own strength. They knew this because of Jesus' spirit, who they saw descend on them. The spirit of God was now present, faithfully present with them, in them, around them. And because of that, they always went to God before they went out into the world. They were able to meet the problems of life, even the hard suffering and persecution, which they all experienced under Rome They were able to meet these things because they first met with God. 
Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Luke, as he's writing this, is so good at writing and placing all these signposts for us to follow and to understand. Everyone was in awe because God was doing extraordinary things through the apostles, for sure. But I also wonder if they now had eyes to see and ears to hear because of their encounter with the Holy Spirit, because of their fellowship, because of gathering and breaking bread. They had eyes to see and ears to hear. Friends, if God is active today around us, if he is still active, still faithfully present, then there's much to see. And I wonder if we've paused long enough in our days to sit, to pray, to listen, to see his work. I wonder if we come to be with God's presence first before we go see the world. I wonder if our schedules and lives are so busy we don't prioritize God and time to be with him. And because of that, we run aground and we run dry and we run empty. And most importantly, because we don't do that time with God, we miss his amazing work constantly around us, in us, and in others. We don't have the eyes and ears to hear and see what God is doing in other people because we're so busy with things that need to be done. All the good things that need to be done. The call of this early church movement, the early movement showed that the Christian lives in re- was in reverence because they, they know and they knew that the whole earth is the temple of the living God and his presence was in them and around them and the work of Christ was finished on the cross and in the tomb. God is no longer just present in the temple. We don't need to build a building or an ark or a tabernacle because of Jesus Christ. God is now in us and around us and present here right now. Just pondering that fact should stop us in our tracks. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This early movement had an intense feeling of responsibility for each other. They could no longer live selfishly despite living in an incredibly selfish class system of governments. Like back then that happened, where governments and things were, class systems were very selfish. It's hard for us to imagine. Thank you for laughing. I wasn't sure if that was landing. Okay. Their encounter with the Spirit of God and the presence of Jesus had only one conclusion— responsibility for one another. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Their numbers grew daily. They didn't promise wealth. They didn't promise you know, security in the sense how we think of security, that you're going to be protected from all the suffering and pain of the world. But yet the church grew. They recognized the presence of God was so powerful in their gathering, in their eating, in their breaking, in their prayer, in their responsibility for one another. It's like as if the meaning and purpose of God leaked into their hearts and opened up all the desires they ever had to serve and to have a purpose and to live with meaning. And so they grew. Earlier, I posed two questions. 
Why does faithful presence matter and why the church? Friends, I believe it matters because when we recognize the work of God in our midst, when we recognize the work of God in other people, when we see God's purpose to be with us all, our purposes, our meanings begin to adjust something our soul has been thirsting for all along. You were never made to walk this place alone, despite what the song says. You were never made to walk this place alone. You were never made to be a self-made man. That's a, that's a myth. Nobody's a self-made man. You might have worked really hard. You might have had obstacles like you, I wouldn't even believe. But there were circumstances and there was people and there were situations that came around you to help you. Nobody's a self-made man and nobody was made to be one. None of us were made to have all the answers. None of us were made to prove ourselves. You were created with value and worth to be in the presence of God who has done everything possible for you to meet him. The church is a movement that boldly stands for making space for the presence of God in our lives, in our hopes, and in our dreams. A movement that makes space for devotion of studying the story, the redemption of God, a movement that welcomes all to the table to eat together, to pray, and to be part of the redemption. A movement that is filled with awe of God's presence and his faithfulness in our lives as he's transforming the work of changing us to a people who can welcome others. But more than welcome, a movement that holds responsibility for one another, even those we disagree with especially those we disagree with, even those we don't understand, even those we might not like, even those who have done us wrong. Wait, especially those who have done us wrong. Because who here has done no wrong? Sometimes those of us who grew up in the church so if you didn't grow up in the church, or if you're new or visiting, you're like, I, I'm just visiting here. There's a lot of stuff coming at me. This is just chill, sit back. This is for those of you that grew up in the church. The rest of you can just observe. But for those of us who say we are Christians, sometimes we Christians proclaim that we, we need to be bold, that we need to tell it how it is, that we need to stand up and fight. And we say these kind of things because we have an agenda. But look at how Luke describes what boldness actually looks like. How does Luke describe it? Devoting to study, welcoming people to break bread with them, praying with them, and making other people's circumstances your responsibility. That's boldness. People in your life, people you encounter, make, you are to make them your responsibility of care. Boldness, bold is deciding to step into faithful presence of another's life. Church. We talked a little bit about this in Alpha this week. Every generation is, is remembered for something. We look back on different generations and we think, wow, the World War II generation. Man, that was horrific violence, horrible war. And those heroes that stood up to tyranny. Or remember another generation, whatever generation comes to your mind, whatever epochs of, of, of eras and you think about and you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. Especially if you're a history buff, you might have lots of different things come up. 
And they're interesting and fascinating, and some of them are so, some of those eras are so cruel and violent, and others are more hopeful. But what we remember most out of those generations, specifically, are stories of people who risked their lives to save others, especially from certain death. I think of World War II generation. I think of families that risked their lives to hide Jewish families in their barns, basements, attics, knowing this could cost them their lives, but they took responsibility for other people because it was the right thing to do. Sacrifices people made in communist countries, closed border countries. And you think about all those different generations, and they're known for many, many things. And we could go through history and list of them. But what they're most remembered for is those stories of sacrifice, of responsibility for others. Why? Something in your heart was always designed to be in the presence of God with a vocation and purpose to care for others. This is what you were made for. This is why when those stories come, you tear up. When you watch a show and you see somebody come through and love somebody sacrificially or do something extraordinary that your heart just pounds more and you're so invested in the story because there's something beautiful and true in it. These are signposts of what you were designed for, to take responsibility for others. That's boldness. This generation, this multi-generational time with pandemic, the COVID generation, will be remembered. Years will go by, and, and in school they'll be talking about this pandemic that hit the world and changed the economy and did all these things and how disruptive it was and how hard it was. And we had to wear masks and we had to do vaccines and some people didn't want to. It'll be, well, history will look at all of this for sure. And I'm just going to get a little bit real here, and this might feel uncomfortable and that's okay pay attention to that uncomfortableness pay attention to that tension that you might be feeling here but i think in light of the early church it's worth asking what will we the church be remembered as in this time of covid what are we going to be remembered for are we going to be remembered as people that argued unendedly over masks and vaccines and pointed fingers and told other people that that person sucks and this person is no good is that what the movement of God is going to be remembered for? That the church maligned other people, even those they didn't agree with, or didn't like? Will we, will we be remembered as a church that was so focused on politics instead of devoting themselves to the study of the apostles, faithfully gathering, breaking bread, and taking responsibility for one another? How will you be remembered? To be bold in how we love, not in how we argue. The initial movement of the way of Jesus, the church, grew daily. It grew not because of the best programs or the best speakers. The church grew because the people began to act like Jesus. They devoted their time to study, to learn what Jesus did and taught, and then began to actually live it out. Not as some kind of philosophy out there. Isn't that cool with the Jesus turned the other cheek? They actually began to live it out. And it cost people lives. There was sacrifice. They cared for their Roman persecutors. They fed prisoners. They cared for the least. 
Friends, it's time for the church to recapture this imagination and step in boldness of love. The early movement, the early church was living the way of Jesus, which meant they took on responsibility of those who hated them, who persecuted them, and they loved them nonetheless. So, what will you be remembered for? How will you be remembered? Did you have the best argument for or against COVID? For or against masks? For or against vaccines? Or will you be remembered as somebody who boldly loved and took responsibility of those around them? As Pastor John comes up to do an appeal, would you just bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for your faithful presence. We thank you for your bold love of coming into this world, knowing there's something to do that we could not do, giving your life up for us in that sacrifice, defeating death once and for all so that we could live. God, would you give us the courage to be bold in how we care for our neighbors, how we care for those around us, how we love our neighbors. God, would you give us boldness through your spirit that you promised to be in, and in us and around us to walk hopefully with your love and your strength. Would you, God, lead us and teach us as we devote to studying about you as we faithfully gather, as we break bread, and give us the boldness to have responsibility for others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.